Welcome to this edition of Labor Vision. I'm Bob Delaney, Executive Director of the Institute for Labor Studies and Research. Labor Vision, a production of the Institute, focuses on topics of importance to working Rhode Islanders. We hope you enjoy this edition. Vision, a production of the Institute for Labor Studies and Research. My name is Erica Hammond, and join with me today to talk about the complexities of collectively bargaining, bargained training funds is Desiree LeClaire, the Rhode Island Director of the 1199 New England Training and Upgrading Fund, and Dulari Tabaldar, the Director of the 1199 New England Child Care Training Fund. Thank you so much for joining us Thank today. Thank you for having us. All right, let's start with the beginnings, the Simple stuff. Yep. Can you guys both define what a collectively bargained training fund is? Sure. Um, a collectively bargained training fund is a type of negotiated benefit between an, a union and an employer uh, for training and upskilling purposes within the workers that, co that are covered under that collective bargaining agreement. Most funds um, that I've dealt with are Taft-Hartley funds, and those are multi-employer funds uh, in which both the employer and um, the labor representatives serve on the board as trustees. Uh, board, the boards determine what types of benefits are covered, and also, you know, the employer is the contributing body that pays a percentage or a, an amount towards each worker's uh, collective towards the fund. Um, so that could be one percent of all workers covered under the fund. It could be five hundred dollars. Um, it depends on what the negotiated benefit is uh, under the, the contract. Okay. Yeah, and in the case of the 1199 Child Care Training Fund, um, the training fund um, is o overseen by a joint committee mm -hmm. um, that has uh, the state, the Department of Human Services, has 50% oversight over the training fund, and the 1199 Labor Union has 50% oversight over the training fund. And what are some of the benefits of these training funds for their members who have access to them? Do you want to go first? Sure. Um, I think, uh, first of all, when you invest in um, when you invest in workers, they um, and they feel like they're being treated like professionals. Um, that is the the primary benefit that uh, people feel like they're being seen, they're being heard, uh, particularly for family child care providers um, that have been. Uh, their voice is often marginalized mm -hmm. um, from larger conversations around early child care. Um, another thing that train, our training fund uh, and most training fund programs offer is that all the trainings are free, mm -hmm. um, so there's no cost to workers. Um, also, our programs are aligned with the quality rating improvement system, so if a member is interested in taking advantage of a training or a PD opportunity, they know that by participating it, it is um, supporting their growth and their right. career advancement, which could also lead to um, uh, increased pay. Um, in the case of the 1199 Training and Upgrading Fund at Women and Infants Hospital, there are many ways that members can benefit uh, th through tuition assistance programs, uh, sometimes a voucher or a reimbursement. Um, it could be through an internal incumbent worker training, apprenticeships, career planning, um, educational planning, college planning, textbook or computer reimbursement. I mean, again, where the board is really making the determination on what the benefits are, there are a lot of opportunities for um, mm -hmm. Uh, for the members. Um, 
And like Delari said, you know, you're investing in workers. Uh, some employers might say, well, why would I do this? <laughs> because then our people would leave. But that's actually not the way uh, I've seen it happen. I worked, uh, did this work in Boston as well for the um, UHE, 1199 UHE. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, a lot of employees will stay longer because right. their employer is investing in them. So that's um, that's just some of the, the main benefits, especially when you're looking at healthcare, longevity, things like that. So. And I know both of you already kind of got into this a little bit, but what are some, what are some of the other examples of trainings and programs that these funds offer members? Yeah, so for the Child Care Training Fund, we're just getting off the ground right now, which is very exciting. So we're in the phase of really developing what our annual calendar of training in PD will look like. Um, so we are offering everything from um, digital literacy trainings, um, health and safety, because health and safety is so uh, fundamental to um, improving quality of care in family mm -hmm. child care. Um, and, but we're also launching a peer mentorship program, um, which will really enable family child care providers to be supports um, to each other. Um, to not only decrease isolation that they may feel, um, being you know the sole owners of their own businesses, but also to just create connections because they're the own ex they're their own experts. And so if if somebody who is um, you know very experienced and has a high quality has a high level in the quality rating improvement system, they may be able to support another provider because they have a shared experience. Um, so we're really excited about that peer mentorship program. We're also launching a substitute pool. Um, so currently with family child care providers, if they don't have a full-time assistant, it's very difficult for them to take advantage of their um, paid sick time that they're eligible for. Mm -hmm. um, in addition, uh, if they wanted to take advantage of a training or professional development opportunity during the day, currently that's that's very challenging because how can they get time out? So we're creating a substitute pool where we're recruiting and training qualified substitutes um, and then also working with an app developer to create an app so that providers and substitutes can become connected um, to really uh, provide more opportunities um, to providers to increase their learning um, and uh, not have to work uh, say like a 14-hour day and then go to a course at CCRI or RIC or somewhere else um, at the end of a long day. Great. Um, at 1199, uh, the Training and Upgrading Fund at Women and Infants, again, we've developed a number of apprenticeship programs. So um, we've created a CNA to um, a medical assisting um, upskill, um, a medical coding program, which is a three-year apprenticeship program to get people from outpatient um, coding to inpatient coding, which is a lot more in-depth. Uh, there's a fetal echocardiography program. There's a medical interpreting program. And we just finished developing an ultrasound apprenticeship program. Um, and these are taking all incumbent workers and upskilling them into some uh, new role in the hospital. In addition, this fall, uh, we're offering um, free uh, basic computer classes on site uh, with the help of the Providence Public Library. And also next spring, we're doing a uh, Spanish for Healthcare Workers program, which is about 40 hours of Spanish mm -hmm. um, that's specifically tailored for the healthcare worker, as well as a medical terminology course that'll help upskill some of those individuals who maybe they might work in the lower skilled, so the EVS department, the environmental services department, the dietary department, um, to get them to maybe a position where they might be working in an administrative role, so wow. a unit secretary, something like that. Um, and those programs we're going to be working with CCRI. Okay. So. And how do some of those programs get decided? Is it is that decided in the negotiating or? 
Well, in the case of Women and Infants Hospital, you know, we work with the HR department and mm -hmm. administration as well as the union to determine what is the best fit for employees, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's about 1,900 members at Women and Infants Hospital, so that's a huge yeah. unit, and there's a lot of needs there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there might be a di diversity training that we offer, and that's something that might be negotiated. It's something that the hospital really wants, and they might put it as a priority, and so the union says, great, how can we best accommodate that? And so mm -hmm. me, as the training fund director, go I go out and look for the program, or develop the program, or find somebody to develop the program, mm -hmm. so. And what are some of the ways that these funds specifically help um, members and the negotiating parties? Yeah, I think um, going back to you know pulling on some thread that, for threads that we've already spoken about, I think when you invest in workers, everybody wins. Yeah. Um, and so uh, from the perspective of um, the state, who's the DHS is the employer in the case of um, child care and the labor union, um, when you're investing in training and professional development, not only do the workers feel like they're being um, respected as the, for the professionals mm -hmm. that they are, but it can also improve their quality and satisfaction in their work, uh, which can lead to retention um, in the field, uh, which can support um, a dwindling workforce um, mm -hmm. and hopefully help to recruit more members to the workforce um, because as more members um, get trained and move up the quality continuum um, and that increases their reimbursement rates, it becomes more attractive for people to enter the field. Yeah, and the other thing I would say is, so training funds sort of act like uh, within a, a bipartisan space. So I don't oversee any grievances, any disputes. There are no labor management issues, things like that. Um, we are really at a, at a sort of a, a convex to help the employer and the uh, union to make sure that their members are not only respected, like Delari said, being upskilled, being treated as professionals, mm -hmm. but also allow the employer to um, continue to do the work that they need to do to get the job done. So for instance, we're upskilling ultrasound techs in that fetal echocardiography program. That's something that has allowed the prenatal diagnostic center at Women and Infants Hospital to open up availability for appointments. There's a bottleneck for some of those um, maternal fetal medicine appointments. And now, they, because of our program, they're now able to have more appointments, There's patients mm -hmm. are being seen quicker, more patients are being seen, so it's a win-win for the hospital and the member who has now a portable credential. Right, so. that has many layers. Right, so many layers, right, yeah. And now I know this may be different for all training funds, but how are some of what? How do these training funds operate? So is it solely on negotiating dollars? Are there other training fund? Are there other other funding opportunities? Yeah, I mean, so um, I know that ESF, uh, Delaris organization, is a 501c3. Uh, the uh, Training and Upgrading Fund out of Connecticut is actually a 501c9 um, organization, but we are completely able to apply as separate entities mm -hmm. from the union and the employer. We're able to apply for uh, grant funds. For instance, our uh, free computer classes, we're receiving money from the Real Jobs Rhode Island program, as well as the Spanish for Healthcare Workers. Uh, we're hoping that that'll be paid partially through that. Right. Um, I know for our work um, with uh, the Healthcare Career Advancement Program, with some of our apprenticeship work, we've been able to sub substitute some monies for that as well. So mm -hmm. we are available to, to do that, and that's a, a big help. It's a big right. benefit. 
Yeah, similarly, um, because we, uh, my, my organization, the SEIU Education and Support Fund, we're the fiscal agent for the training fund dollars um, for this, uh, for family child care, uh, and we're also the organization in charge of the program implementation. Um, and so ESF is a national organization um, that already does receive uh, philanthropic dollars to support the, um, the national work, um, and in Rhode Island, we can also benefit from those dollars as well as um, collectively bargained funds. Yeah, and one thing I will note too is actually um, 1199 ESF and the 1199 Training and Upgrading Fund mm -hmm. uh, in May were actually um, awarded a quality uh, partnership through the Real Jobs Rhode Island. So we have our own access to that now through the qual uh, Connecting mm -hmm. for Quality Care partnership okay. that we created. That's awesome. Yeah. And now I know we're running out of time, but before we finish up, uh, do either of you have any programs or trainings that are kicking off? I know, I believe, Delari, I know you may have one um, that are kicking off soon that we should keep on the radar. Yeah, we do have that peer mentorship program that I mentioned uh, that's kicking off at the end of October. Um, and so that is our pilot program. And we're really excited to be working with a group of about 12 family child care providers. Um, and then after that course is completed um, in January, then they will be working with um, a set of mentees. Mm -hmm. to um, to improve um, on the quality continuum and we're looking forward to replicating that course we also have digital literacy courses that are coming up health and safety courses that are coming up and all of that will be promoted through the Center for Early Learning Professionals as well as through the SEIU ESF website okay so and viewers should check that out if they're interested yes right all right yeah great well thank you so much we're just about out of time um, I want to thank both of you guys, Desiree and Dulari, for joining us. Okay. And we will keep both of those on our radar. Those are exciting. Thank, thank you very you. much. All right. Thanks. All right. Thank you all so much. You're watching Labor Vision. Um, my name is Erica Hammond, Workforce Labor Liaison at the Institute for Labor Studies and Research. And we look forward to seeing you back here next week. Thanks for joining us. Good evening and welcome to this edition of Labor Vision. My name is Jim Riley. I'll be your host tonight. We've got a great guest tonight. We've got a healthy show tonight. We're going to be talking to Dr. Lee Okorowski, who is the medical director of the Rhode Island Occupational Environmental Health Center of Rhode Island. I got through that all right. Okay, so tell us about yourself and then we're going to talk about ergonomics. I'm the medical director here at the center and uh, we provide um, consulting medical services for uh, members and the general public on work-related issues and illnesses and injuries. And uh, we also provide um, services to the general public regarding environmental exposures. So good to be here and good to talk to you about some ergonomics. Yeah, let's talk about ergonomics. You know, I, I was a meat cutter. That was my career. And uh, we, we had a lot of repetitive movement, you know, working with knives and whatnot. And I had a couple of problems. I had Dupatron contraction in both my hands and had to have operations. So I'm, I'm well aware of the uh, ergonomics. So tell us, what is, for the layperson, what is ergonomics? Ergonomics really is just uh, the technical term for the study of work. But as it really applies in this setting, it's, it's, it's focusing in on fitting the task to the worker and really making sure that jobs are designed appropriately for those who perform them as opposed to the other way around, just creating a job and, and slamming an individual into that position. That's when you get into trouble. So mm -hmm. the focus of ergonomics is the science of really studying how we can best adapt the job to the individual. So who needs to know 
about ergonomics? Well, I mean, in the biggest sense, it's really all employees, employers, labor organizations, but focusing in on specific aspects of certain trades, it's really those where we have forceful, repetitive movement in, in potentially awkward postures. And where we really see that is in everything from healthcare to construction, maritime, meat packing, um, but also the office environment. So it's, it's a pretty ubiquitous area, and people really need to be understanding, even in the home environment, um, data entry, working at computers, et cetera, are all potentially ergonomic hazards. Mm -hmm. So uh, musculoskeletal disorders, or MSDs, uh, tell us what they are. That's really, MSDs is really the, the, the injury that results from poor ergonomics. Mm -hmm. And those are soft tissue injuries that occur to things like muscles, tendons, ligaments, joints. And in your example, Dupuytren's contracture is an example of a very well-known musculoskeletal disorder. Um, so from a medical perspective, that's, that's the disease outcome of poor ergonomic exposure or poor ergonomic design for the individual or worker. What causes these musculoskeletal skeletal disorders? Well, when we look at jobs ergonomics, we really focus on a couple key risk factors. The first being forceful movements combined with repetition. And then the third real hallmark is, is awkward postures. And when you combine those three major issues, we end up with issues. Um, there are some other issues, of course, that can go into this. Static posture, staying in one position too long. Also, temperature, environment, all factor in. But the real hallmarks are when individuals, workers, are forced to work in positions where there's strong forces moving their hands, arms, legs, um, in awkward postures repetitively over time. And when, when folks are not fit to those specific job tasks or job duties. You know, I've been into a bunch of offices here and there, and um, I've noticed that there are several workers now who actually stand all day at work. Office ergonomics is really a, a whole uh, science into itself, and it's becoming more and more prevalent. But um, what we've started to notice is um, many people um, can't necessarily find optimum positioning in a seated position. So what we've started to do is emphasize more movement in the workplace, particularly the office environment. And one of the ways we can do that is to allow for things like standing desks. Now there, many people think, great, just stand. It's actually changing position. And what a standing workstation allows you to do is adjust, sit, and stand in real time. And what we can do with that is really de-emphasize the stresses on the body, allow people to move more, stay more active, allow blood flow, different positions. So it really is one of those things you're seeing more and more of. And I encourage anybody who works in a static office environment to try to explore that with either their employer or their safety rep, because it's definitely something that's becoming more and more commonplace. Costs are coming down, and it's not something that's out of reach for, for most employers or, or safety programs to, to start exploring those areas. A friend of mine, John Lidecker, is an attorney for the NEA, and he has no chairs in his office. And he's actually designed and built all his furniture for standing, his entire office. It's incredible. 
So can non-work-related factors cause MSD? One of the things we try to teach folks is in addition to the appropriate ergonomic positions in any workplace, we also have to look at other risk factors. Those are general deconditioning, obesity, diabetes. All these factors can make musculoskeletal disorders worse. It's not to say they're necessarily, necessarily causal, but what we want to emphasize is fitness for the whole being. And um, so we definitely want to watch those, particularly in the general population as well. I think I've probably done some of these jobs where, uh, uh, and, well, certainly meat cutting was, was very effective like that. We're handing a lot of boxes and things like that. But, I mean, what types of work are, are the most likely to pose these kinds of problems? Well, we see a lot of this in the manufacturing trades, um, also healthcare, nurses, orderlies, moving patients, but also maritime construction are high. Um, we see this also in, in the trades involved in, you know, general uh, hotel industry, etc. So we're really seeing these across the board. Um, the data is sort of fluctuating based on, on numbers, but the, the, the area that's growing more and more quickly these days is the office environment. That's where a lot of new attention has been focusing. So that traditionally was not ex expected to be a high ergonomic risk, but we've started to see that. But lastly, the real hallmark is the meatpacking industry, which you have experience mm -hmm. in, and that's the classic forceful cutting, repetitive slamming that um, is required. Um, uh, the meat industry has actually done a great work in that, redesigning tools, using automation, et cetera, to, to try to limit those injuries to, to those it's workers. It's also a very dangerous workplace Correct. as well. Very dangerous workplace. And that's an important thing to emphasize with any ergonomic intervention. Um, Oftentimes, any redesign of tools, um, equipment, has to maintain certain safety aspects. So that's why any issues that a worker may bring really should be done as part of a comprehensive program where all aspects of safety are examined. Um, and, you know, ergonomics is just one area of safety, but a lot of these work, the work in ergonomic programs requires a comprehensive input from employees, employers, union safety reps, etc. It's not something we should be just doing willy-nilly. We really have to examine the whole program and what's going on globally with the processes. And one of the big tools that really has to occur first is a, what's called a job hazard analysis. And that's something that should be done routinely with, with a high frequency to maintain worker safety. And what happens there is it's a comprehensive look at all the risk factors that may be impacting um, negatively worker health and safety. And ergonomics is clearly part of that process or program. Lift from the knees, not from your back. There you go. I've been hearing that all my life. I guess that's why I have that bad back, but I haven't been very good at that. So what would you say were the top ten occupations where we have these muscular skeletal disorders? From OSHA NIOSH data is really related to uh, nurses, aides, orderlies, attendants, uh, truck drivers, uh, laborers in both construction, non-construction, also janitors and cleaners, um, registered nurses, stock handlers, etc. Registered nurses? From, yes. From uh, dealing with lifting and, uh, with patients and that sort of thing? Patient safety and handling is a huge issue both That's for this. problem in nursing homes yeah, too. Yes. An awful lot of that. Um, and that's a, that's a, that's a double issue because you're not only dealing with the safety of the patient but more and more attention is being focused on the safety of the person doing the lifting, the nurse or the nurse's aide. Uh -huh. And how do we optimize 
both the safety to the patient but also the safety to the employee. And, and hospitals are having to, to look globally at the issue. It's, and lots of the focus initially was on patient safety. We're seeing really a shift to now expand what safe patient handling means. It's not just safe for the patient, it's also safe for the employee. I did a lot of organizing in my career, did some healthcare organizing and uh, organized some uh, nursing facilities here and there. And that was always a big issue for the nurses' aides, a really big, an important issue even in negotiations. One of the things that's, there's, there's really, um, really expansive areas um, in products designed around those issues. Um, hospitals are, are appropriately so, uh, providing more and more fiscal and time attention to how best to move individuals, patients, um, with lifts, uh -huh. um, new devices to move patients, slide boards, et cetera. But it's really something that should be on the forefront of, of, of worker safety and health care. Um, it's, it's an area that I think has to be approached with all parties involved, and clearly you know, labor has a role to play in that. How would I know if I have a musculoskeletal disorder? You'd start with the job tasks you do, and one of the first areas that people start to notice, probably you had it, is when you started to do your job. You started to notice, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, you start getting aches, pains. Uh, MSDs typically start with, you know, chronic aches, pains, uh, decreased range of motion. Initially treated conservatively, but when, when conditions become chronic, you start getting numbness, you start getting tingling. Um, that's when there's clear indication that an individual needs to either talk to their safety supervisor or report, report the injury as something that they need formal assistance with. Can we really control these er our ergonomic risk factors? Without full automation, probably no, but mm -hmm. we can definitely decrease the risks. And, and that's really through good job design and, and appropriate risk assessment. Um, and that, as I stated before, really requires a team effort. It requires employers to recognize their responsibility, employees to voice their concerns and talk about when they're having these issues, and also appropriate safety and health representatives from labor to get involved uh, proactively before these conditions become um, too problematic and chronic. What can I do as an individual to improve the... Uh economic or, or the ergonomic hazards in my own workplace. It really starts with, like I said before, recognizing the tasks you do and, and, and uh, you know, looking at what assessments and what safety programs exist in your organization and, and asking appropriate questions about can those be improved and uh, working, working with not only your coworkers but also with management and labor, health and safety to, to see how help can be provided not only to an individual but to the group. What, what parts of the body are most affected by these musculoskeletal disorders? We traditionally hear about, you know, the hands, the arms, you know, mm -hmm. your, 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 your issues with your hands, but it clearly does affect uh, elbows, shoulders, back, lower extremities. Um, so it's, it's pretty, it can be pretty much any part of the body. Yeah, I guess. Well, this has been a great show today. Thank you so much for Thank coming you. in today, Dr. Rokorowski. And uh, that's it for this edition of Labor Vision. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Labor Vision. We appreciate your input and encourage your comments. Labor Vision can be seen on this channel three times each week, Tuesday at 7 p.m., Thursday at 8 p.m., 
and Saturday at 5 p.m.